0: It was June 4th, 1971. Charlotte was a 52-year-old married mother of two teenage boys. She, her husband Ben, and their sons were living in Anchorage at the time, but Ben was spending a lot of time running a logging operation for the South Central Timber Company in Icy Bay near Yakutat in southeast Alaska. That Saturday in June, Charlotte was leaving Anchorage to head south and visit her husband. She boarded flight 1866, a Boeing 727, which had stops in Cordova, Yakutat, Juneau, and Sitka on the way to its final destination in Seattle. Meanwhile, at the Icy Bay logging camp, Charlotte's husband, Ben, began to watch for his wife's arrival. Time ticked on, and he began to get nervous. As her ETA came and went. Being 1971 in a remote logging camp, they had no phone and used a CB radio for communications. He was finally able to contact the airport in Yakutat to find out when the plane had arrived. He was told that the flight had not stopped at Yakutat due to bad weather and had continued on to Juneau, where it had actually lost contact with air traffic control on approach to Juneau Airport and was presumed crashed. Ben, of course, was in shock. He learned that a massive search had started for the missing plane. He contacted his sons in Anchorage, who told him that their mother had left to catch the plane hours ago and they hadn't heard anything since. Ben had to break the news that the plane that their mother had been on was missing and Alaska Airlines was launching a search. Ben, his sons, and hundreds of others with loved ones on that flight would spend the next several hours in limbo waiting to find out what had happened to the missing plane. Just one year prior in November, 1970, Ben and Charlotte's family had been dining at the Top of the World restaurant in a downtown Anchorage hotel when they had witnessed the fireball caused by a DC-8 charter plane crashing and exploding on takeoff at Anchorage International Airport. The plane had been loaded with 229 servicemen headed to Vietnam, and 46 had died in the crash. Now Ben and his sons couldn't help but think of that horrible scene that they had witnessed and imagining that their wife and mother could have gone through the same thing. Anyone who has ever flown into Juneau knows that it's a particularly nerve-wracking landing as the flight path takes travelers on a white-knuckle journey through a valley between two large mountains on the way down to the runway. It was easy to imagine something going terribly wrong on that descent, especially with the notoriously bad weather in southeastern Alaska. After a long day of waiting for the worst news, Ben and his two sons were granted a reprieve from joining the ranks of the morning. Their mother and wife had actually not been aboard the plane when it disappeared. In fact, there had actually been a communication breakdown between Ben and Charlotte, and she had actually disembarked the plane in Cordova. She had thought she was supposed to take the airport shuttle to a small airplane field where a pilot would be waiting to take her to the logging camp. But after taking that trip and realizing she was supposed to have disembarked at Yakutat, she tried calling her sons in Anchorage and tried contacting the radio at the logging camp, but it was hours before she got a hold of either of them, and in the meantime she was stuck at the Cordova airport. She'd had no idea that the plane she had been on had crashed after she got off, and had likely spent the day frustrated at her situation not knowing that her whole family thought she could be dead. They would be the lucky ones, and eventually my father was reunited with his mother, because, as you see, Ben and Charlotte were my paternal grandparents, and at the time my father was their 16-year-old son. But the families of the other 113 souls on board the plane would not be so lucky. A massive search had commenced, By air and sea, and eventually several hours after the plane vanished, an Alaska State Trooper flying in a helicopter spotted the crash site. It was located at an altitude of around 2,500 feet up the side of a mountain about 18 miles west of the airport. It was clear from the location of the crash that the plane had been flying about 45 degrees off course there were no survivors and those involved with the recovery operation were likely haunted by the hellish scene they encountered on that quiet mountain a massive area was scattered with bits and pieces of the plane mixed with body parts one witness at the crash site said that there was no single remaining piece of the plane that was too big to hold in one's hand. It had been destroyed so completely. Dozens of Alaska National Guard members were dispatched to the site where they would spend a couple of weeks sifting through the remains, of which it would take over a week to gather all of the human remains located at the site. And it would take over a month to identify all of the victims that were on board. And they could only use dental records and fingerprints. But the worst part of the whole operation was for the occasional recovery worker when they came across the remains of someone that they knew. And I cannot imagine how utterly horrifying that would be to deal with. At the time, it was the worst United States civil air disaster in history, and it remains the deadliest airplane crash in Alaska's history. It would spark a debate on where to place the blame, and lead to a several-year-long investigation into the cause, and would lead to some changes in the airline industry. But in the immediate aftermath of the crash, there was simply overwhelming grief, that resonated throughout the gigantic small town that is Alaska. For a long time afterward, it seemed like every Alaskan had a connection to someone on board that flight. In fact, my grandpa Ben's assistant at the logging operation and his entire family had all died in the crash. And for the next several years of living in Cordova and Fairbanks, my parents would continuously come across classmates who had lost parents and other relatives on that flight. The grief resonated even further, as there were many people on board from other states and countries. While family members were left to wallow in their sadness and loss, the airline and FAA were quickly trying to figure out what exactly had led to the crash. The plane had been getting close to its final approach to the airport, and they had been in contact with air traffic control not long before the crash, and absolutely everything had seemed fine. Witnesses in the area that heard the crash did not notice any sign of engine trouble or anything along those lines, or a plane flying erratically, etc. The plane seemingly had just flown directly into the mountain. Prior to the introduction of GPS on aircraft, Pilots flying in bad weather had to use ILS, or Instrument Landing System, which uses radio signals sent from a ground transmitter to guide pilots to the correct landing path. But because of the mountainous topography surrounding Juno, the ILS does not work correctly there. And so a different system was used called VOR, or Very High Frequency Omnidirectional Range, that is a mouthful, which is very similar to, but lacks the precision, of ILS. The ILS has both a vertical and horizontal radio signal that guides the plane on a very specific path, and the vertical guide is called a glide slope. The VOR approach is more laissez-faire in that it lacks the vertical navigational guidance of the glide slope, and simply gives the horizontal navigational guidance. With this approach, there is one beacon coming from the runway, which is picked up by the plane's receiver. The pilot then manually steps down their descent, using an approach chart, which is specific to each airport. They're based on the surroundings of the airport, and are updated regularly to reflect changes in that environment, such as A mountain being built, you know, I love it when that happens. Sorry, I just had to break up that technical jargon before I fell asleep while reading it. They can also reference known locations to help the guidance further, such as a mountain, a lake, etc., where you know exactly where it is. For example, the approach chart might say something like, Once you are x distance from airport, you may go down to x minimum altitude, and the pilot continuously steps down until they hit the minimum descent altitude, at which point they keep going until they see the runway. It just completely lacks the exactitude of the ILS system, which even has a very specific exact angle of descent pilots stick to. So it's kind of like the difference between car directions where you say you're going to drive exactly 1.7 miles, take a left on A Street, drive for another 256 feet, and park at the Blue House. Versus you're going to pass a barn, drive for a while, you'll see a lake at some point, park near there. But unfortunately, at the time, for a place like Juno there was no other option than VOR because the ILS simply would not work. Now, I really hope that explanation made sense because I had to read way too much about aviation than I ever planned, wanted, or hoped to in my life. (laughs) But I guess you learn something new every day, huh? So, of course, when investigating this accident, one of the first things the FAA looked at was the VOR located at Juneau Airport, and they found that it seemed to be working correctly. And yet somehow the pilot had been flying 45 degrees off course. So they began to wonder if it was some pilot or navigator error. Also in the time before GPS, there was a dedicated flight navigator or two that maintained that the flight was on the correct route. In passenger airlines, this job has been almost completely discontinued with modern technology. And of course the airline did not want to believe that it could be crew error that led to all of these deaths, which is why they kept pushing the investigation further, whereas the FAA seemed like they were starting to believe that it was pilot or navigational error. Many pilots would come forward that had flown that route before complaining that they too had had previous errors with the VOR, even though it had always tested accurately. The airplane's black box had been recovered, and so they were able to learn that there didn't seem to be any issues with the crew, they didn't hear any confusion, or at least they didn't seem aware of their confusion, obviously, and they actually believed themselves to be much further east than they actually were. Several weeks into the investigation, Things took a really weird turn. One day out of the blue, flight operations at Alaska Airlines received a letter. It was from someone named Marianne Elko, who proclaimed that she was a psychic. She specialized in the practice of spirit writing, also known as automatic writing, and claimed that the spirit of the pilot of flight 1866 41-year-old Dick Adams had taken control of her hand to tell everyone what had caused the crash. She also claimed that the explanation was actually written in Adams' handwriting and included his signature at the bottom. Despite thinking that this was probably nonsense, everyone at Alaska Airlines really, really respected Dick Adams. He'd been a pilot for 20 years and he really knew his shit, and nobody wanted to believe he could make such a Such a bad error. So, despite reservations, they showed the signature to his widow, Kay, who said it looked exactly like her husband's handwriting. But there wasn't that much in the letter that was particularly helpful at the time. But the second letter, which showed up a few months later, was shocking. In this letter, Marianne, as Dick, wrote that he had come across another pilot in the afterlife who had died in a similar crash. She gave specific details of the Spanish airline involved, the exact type of plane, the pilot's name, the location of the crash, and the fact that a faulty VOR signal had caused the pilot to crash into a hill. The airline at the time was working with an accident investigator, so they contacted him asking about the Spanish airplane crash, asking if these details sounded familiar or if an incident similar to this had happened. It turns out that not only did that crash actually occur and fit all of the details included in the letter, but the Spanish VOR station was located directly next to a large lake, whereas the VOR station in Juneau was located on a very small island surrounded by a large canal. Now, despite the fact that this information had come from a psychic, Alaska Airlines began to think there might be something to it. They learned that the FAA rules stipulated that the VOR antenna had to have at least a 300-foot diameter area of level ground surrounding it to maintain signal stability. But the island that the Juno VOR antenna was on was less than 150 feet in diameter, so the FAA had broken their own rule when they had placed the antenna there. Furthermore, the island was cliffs on all sides dropping dozens of feet down to the water. And investigators realized that when the water surrounding the island was calm, it could mimic solid land and cause the radio signal to produce an inaccurate altitude reading. And since the water in that area was almost always not calm, going cray-cray, that would be a reasonable explanation as to why this sort of issue didn't show up more often and why it wasn't easily reproducible is that a word and it explains why just a few hours after the crash the vor antenna could produce an accurate reading when the water is no longer calm the head of communications at alaska airlines was an electronics whiz named dave zirung and the first female pilot at alaska airlines was a woman named Joanne Osterud. She had a degree in nuclear physics and was insanely smart. And they began working together to solve the mystery of what happened to flight 1866. The pair of them decided to do do some testing on the VOR antenna during a variety of different weather patterns and water conditions using Joanne's plane. They did many, many tests, which showed that the VOR antenna accuracy was drastically affected by the surrounding water conditions, and they were able to perfectly replicate the inaccurate signal which had caused the deaths of 113 people. In 1975, Zurang was allowed to testify and discuss the data the two of them had collected from their many test flights at an FAA hearing in Los Angeles. There had been many, many lawsuits in the wake of the crash, and the FAA was trying to determine liability. So after explaining the data and the tests, Ziering and Osterud were able to get some FAA investigators to come up to the Juneau Island and repeat the test using their equipment. But unfortunately, during the couple of days that they were there, the water was never calm enough to replicate the results. While they had been up in Alaska, they learned that the FAA had gone ahead and done a settlement in which they gave Alaska Airlines $15 million towards the lawsuits filed against them by victims' families. Which, unfortunately, this meant that the data collected showing the inaccurate readings never became a part of the official record. And officially, the accident continues to be listed as unsolved. So thank you so much for listening to this episode, I thought it was a pretty interesting story and I know that technical jargon probably was giving some of you terrible flashbacks to science class, but it was obviously a necessary part of the story. There were many changes made at the Juno airport because of this crash, including the addition of new distance measuring equipment. which theoretically will prevent future crashes. However, there have been at least a handful more deadly plane crashes in those exact same mountains in the years since this crash. Over the next few decades, GPS was created and progressed quite a bit. And by the 90s, there was a new navigation system called the Required Navigation Performance, which combines GPS with onboard navigation. And it's especially helpful in places with a lot of really bad weather, like Juno. And Juno was made into sort of a launch pad slash testing area for this new navigational system. And it worked so well there that it was eventually launched all across the United States. So that's all I've got for you on aviation navigation information for tonight. Join me on my new podcast, Aviation 101. I'm so kidding. I would never do that to you or to myself or to anyone, really. But thank you for listening. Times are crazy. I hope you're all hanging in there. I'm glad 2020 is over. I'm going to try to get out an end of 2020 wrap up by the end of 2021, so fingers crossed on that. I hope that wherever you are, you're staying sane during this continuous surrealistic, surrealistic nightmare. Uh, It snowed in Palm Springs where I live today, so that was very disturbing. Oh, and I have to give a shout out to my lovely fancy, beautiful patrons. You guys are awesome. Welcome to my newest patron, Kat. I'll be sending you some goodies in the mail very soon. And to everybody, you're all going to be my Valentine's, so I'm going to send you all some Valentine's goodies. And by everybody, I mean my patrons, not all listeners, because I ain't made of money. So until next time, thank you. Bye!